And welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 78, recorded on November 4th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's great to be connected with you. And we have a week of releases. People have been busy since their summer break, and we kick things off with the Fedora 29 release. Yeah, this is a big release for them. And I think the biggest thing that jumps out at me here is the modularity that they've now got. This is really neat. This is something that Wes and I had to play with before Linux Unplugged. And the idea is you can ship different versions of packages on the same Fedora base. So this means that you no longer need to make your whole OS upgrade just to get, say, the latest Node.js, or vice versa. When Fedora 30 comes around and you have to upgrade because of the 13-month roughly support cycle, you don't want to have to rebuild your whole application based on the new version of Node.js and Fedora 30 so you can install Fedora 30 base but use the modular version to install the Fedora 29 Node.js package. It's a little confusing, but it solves a long-standing problem on Linux that Flatpaks and Snaps have attempted to solve, but this is at the package level. And it also is very handy in a distribution which has a very rapid update cycle. Well, Snaps immediately come to mind when I read about this modularity. You say that they've been attempting to solve it, but it feels like a fairly solved problem to me with Snaps, and Snaps are available in Fedora, so... Why did they need to do it? It's a choose-your-flavor-to-solve-the-problem kind of thing. So Snaps and Flatpaks, you could think of as really the developer is able to directly publish the software to the end user. That's a developer model of distributing software, and it's pretty popular right now. Distributing packages via a repo is really a system administrator's way to distribute software. That's how sysadmins would invent a system. You know, you can have local repositories with your own keys and all this stuff that's very much of a system administrator's way of managing software and only root can install those packages. Again, the system administrator. And they are a very valid way of managing software, especially on production systems. And so this is solving that software availability issue across multiple releases from the repository and software management standpoint. Because you can install, say, that Fedora 28 version of Node.js on Fedora 29, and now it's getting updated with security fixes as part of your DNF upgrade. It's just all of your packages. It it is included in that, and so you can manage it as you would a standard piece of software on your Linux box from the repositories. Yeah, and it means that you don't have to have a million block devices when you do LSPLK to try and uh, see where you're going to DD your ISO. <laughs> so it makes that a bit cleaner as well. I guess yeah, so. I, I suppose you're right that it is more of a sysadmin way of doing things, and it's it's more traditional, isn't it? It's it's a new take on the traditional way rather than completely reinventing the wheel like they have with Snaps and Flatpaks. So I suppose I should be more on board with this, really. It's an impressive bit of engineering, too, because it required some work at the DNF level. It required some work at the repository level, and it even required some work in, like, the namespace area. So it's been sort of a cross-project effort. I don't know. That's always kind of impressive to see when a distribution pulls that off. And now it's just one of the features in the new release. And, of course, the desktop version has got GNOME 3.30 and various other new packages across the board. Right, and they also have their different images for the different spins of Fedora now. I have Fedora Cloud up on a DigitalOcean droplet and did the upgrade from 28 to 29, and my next cloud instance continued perfectly fine, and now we're even using that for more things. It's been a solid system, and I went in via cockpit. I, in- I installed all of the available updates 
then SSH'd into the box, and there's some basic DNF commands that Fedora always does a great job of documenting, where you go through, you grab the new package plugin to do an upgrade, then you tell it what version you're upgrading to, and it goes. And then it does a systemd reboot and installs all the packages, and when it comes back up, you're on the new version of Fedora. And for four or five times in a row, I have successfully upgraded from one version of Fedora Cloud to the next version of Fedora Cloud. Yeah, well, with a support cycle as short as Fedora, they really have to get those upgrades bulletproof, don't they? Right, that was always my thinking. That's why I even set up this test box to begin with, to see how far I could push it. And so far, they've nailed it. Also, this week, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7.6 has landed. This is a bit of business as usual from the Red Hat camp after the recent big news. Yeah, it's not a hugely interesting release, is it? It's, as you say, business as usual. It's very much enterprise and cloud and hybrid cloud, exactly the sort of stuff we saw in the IBM announcement. We are living in the Red Hat hybrid cloud era The words hybrid cloud show up in this press release 12 times. (laughs) They just really want to talk about this. And I I guess, you know, if you really start defining down a category, hybrid cloud to them is sort of this bridging that they think is going to be the next 80% of cloud adoption. Maybe it will be. IBM thinks it's a trillion dollar market that uh, we'll see. We'll see if this plays out. And Red Hat Enterprise version 7.6 lands with the world-leading support for hybrid cloud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it kind of does make sense, hybrid cloud, though, if you take it to mean a bit of on-premises and a bit of public cloud. That's kind of quite a logical approach, isn't it, rather than sticking all your eggs in one basket? I agree. Yeah, I just, uh, I think it's funny how these words kind of just take off. We can't just have a cloud, and we can't just have a data center. Can't call it hosted computing. No, now it has to be hybrid cloud. And you're right, when you look it up, the definition is exactly that, a mix of on-premises, private cloud, and third-party public cloud services. And that's why orchestration software is such a big deal these days. And that's why when shops like DigitalOcean announce Kubernetes support, it's a really big deal because you can use one set of tools to manage your systems that are right there on your LAN or off in some other country or state on a third-party hosting platform. All one tool, all one set of commands, all one set of user structures. It's pretty powerful stuff. And Red Hat's pretty well positioned here because they are a dominant player in the on-premises Linux server environment. So it would make sense that they would be a pretty good partner in this area. It's just really in your face. Yeah. I think you mean IBM slash Red Hat as well. We've covered this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, to sort of try to make some hay from all of this hoopla around IBM and Red Hat, the Register had a bit of fun. Yeah, they engaged in what can only really be described as clickbait. The headline was, we may now know the real reason for that IBM takeover, distraction for Red Hat to axe KDE. And it's like, uh, okay, so they're going to deprecate KDE, and by 2024, it's not going to be in RHEL. Well, I mean, it's never been massively well-supported anyway, and they're really GNOME-focused, so this is just not really good from the register, is it? It's really just them trying to grab clicks, and you'd expect better from them, really. 
Way to make a great impression on IBM when you know IBM and Red Hat are carefully watching the press coverage right now. And apparently, uh, Steve Elmy from Red Hat did an interview with the registers. I wonder if he's going to be getting an email. Uh, and he's quoted here saying, based on trends in the Red Hat Enterprise Linux customer base, there is an overwhelming interest in desktop technologies such as GNOME, and Wayland, while interest in KDE has been waning in our installed base. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, you, you wonder if maybe that's because they've been holding back their version of Plasma and they've been pushing GTK, GNOME, and Wayland very heavily. Maybe that's why the install base seems to be more interested in GNOME. <laughs> yeah, I remember last time I tried CentOS on the desktop, I installed Plasma or KDE, whatever, expected it to be Plasma 5, and then it was KDE 4. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. Nobody wants that. Did you see Jonathan Riddle's take on this? Yeah, it was quite concise and typically Jonathan. Um, just saying like, yeah, meh. It's not really a big deal, yeah. is it? It's not news, he says. It's just kind of poor timing for Red Hat, though. <laughs> That's what he, yeah. Yeah, he says, it's a pity that RHEL users won't be there to enjoy it by default, but there really never has been a great KDE experience in RHEL, so it's nothing's really changing here. And it just leaves it up to the community to ship Plasma 5, which is way better and way more modern. Yeah. But it's funny that now you've got your main three enterprise desktop Linux distros, RHEL, uh, Slee from SUSE, and Ubuntu, all running GNOME with no KDE. Uh, I mean, I suppose with Ubuntu, it's a bit easier to get Plasma 5 going. But KDE and Plasma is not in SUSE Enterprise Linux at all, and now it's not going to be in Red Hat, which is kind of going against the hype, isn't it? Like, we have this idea that Plasma is really popular, but the reality is that in Enterprise, apparently not. You know, I've thought a little bit about this because if all the desktops, Plasma really feels like a professional-grade workstation. It's multi-threaded. It has multiple processes. So if something goes haywire, you don't lose your whole desktop. It's got features that make it really great on an enterprise network. And it plugs in with collaboration software suites that most businesses use. So it's always really seemed to me like a, a really great workstation choice for the enterprise. And I, I have to wonder if it's not just historical momentum here. GNOME has traditionally always been pretty popular on the Red Hat side of things, and Red Hat was sort of the originator of the enterprise-grade Linux desktop, even if later on they waned from it. You have also sort of the weight and momentum of that carrying now through to other desktops when they try to make their enterprise-grade desktop their shipping GNOME because that's what Red Hat shipped. That sort of momentum that can be started when one major player in the industry starts a trend, I think is a bit of what attributes to GNOME success in these enterprise-grade desktops. What we don't really hear is how these users are getting along with it, how stable it is for them. We don't really hear that kind of feedback from the general enterprise market. And of course, you have to remember that pre-Plasma 5, it wasn't that good, was it? And Plasma 5 has only been around for, in enterprise terms, a blink of the eye because enterprise moves very slowly, doesn't it? So maybe eventually they'll catch on that it's good. I mean, I don't think there's much debate, is there, that 5 is way better than 4. That's my thinking. Yeah, 5 is pretty solid. It just keeps getting better and better. And they've instituted that long-term support cycle, which you keep doing that, you stick with it, 
you may see a few enterprise distributions switch to it over time. Maybe, maybe not. But in the meantime, Sailfish is hoping to get some enterprise phones to switch over. The new Sailfish 3 release is really going after the business customer. Yeah, it seems that they've realized that that's where the money is. They've kind of been going after enterprise and government installations for quite a while. But now they're really doubling down on that with this Selfish 3 release. But that said, they are keeping the community stuff around as well with the Selfish X program, which they're expanding to a few new phones. Yeah, fair enough. Selfish X is living on. Now, I, I would say just what jumped out at me was sort of the verbiage in their uh, version 3 announcement. I, I, I thought this is interesting. They say, Selfish OS has matured to its third generation, Sailfish 3, which now fully packetizes the offering for a multitude of corporate solutions. In line with the regional licensing strategy, Sailfish 3 has a deeper level of security, making it a solid option for various corporate and organizational solutions and other use cases. <laughs> okay, then. It's almost like a Red Hat press release, <laughs> it isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when you start targeting business, you just have to just pack as many words in there as you can. And that's somehow <laughs> writing for business. <laughs> yeah. Well, management like that sort of thing, obviously. There are a few nice new features in here for users, though. They've got that quick settings up in the new top menu. Data encryption for memory cards is now available. A new keyboard that supports gestures. And this one sounds good, too. USB on-the-go storage. You can connect different kinds of external storage devices to your sale, fish, three phone, or tablet or I guess whatever you're running on there and then some camera improvements mostly just around how it operates with the lock screen and uh, the camera roll but good stuff in there overall for end users as well now unfortunately I don't have a device that is compatible with Selfish 3 but I'm tempted I'm very tempted because it looks very slick doesn't it from these screenshots mm -hmm. and I used an earlier version of Selfish and thought that was pretty well polished I thought it was yeah. probably one of the best alternative phone OS's I've ever used so you got to figure, if they've been working on it for a while, uh, you get the Selfish X phone, like the Xperia XA2, you could run it on there. Yeah, I was looking on eBay. It was just slightly too much <laughs> to kind of yeah. sell to my missus that I would spend that much on just something to check out Selfish. But I, I've checked out two on my OnePlus One, but that was an unofficial ROM, so I don't know exactly you know, whether that's a fair test of it. I would really like to get one of these Xperia devices, so I might have to convince her to let me. <laughs> yeah, may the negotiations go well for you, Joe, because I'd like to hear your uh, take on it as well. I tried to give another new release this week ago, Ghost BSD 18.10, which is the first release of Ghost BSD based around True OS under the hood. And it's also got the Mate desktop for the end user. You say try to test this. It didn't work out then. Yeah, I, I used Vert Manager to just basically do some local virtualization, and I could never get the desktop session to actually load. I got all these crazy weird green bars across my screen. I was surprised at how large it was, too. It was like a 2.6-something gigabyte download. Pretty big ISO. It's pretty pretty large for the BSDs. Yeah, well, I decided to try this out on my old test laptop, which is just Intel graphics, works pretty well with Triscoll, so you know that it's going to have a pretty reasonable chance. And it worked perfectly, GhostBSD 18.10. Booted up, no problem. Installed, no problem. Installed some software, did a bit of media playback. It was just a perfectly functional operating system. And that's always been my experience of GhostBSD, even before it was based on TrueOS. For me, 
If you are BSD curious, like I am, I know very little about BSD. I've never run it on any servers or anything. I think Ghost BSD is definitely the place to start because I think when you're first getting into something like Linux, for example, having a really nice desktop makes it easier. It's kind of almost like a, a life preserver, isn't it? It's like you've, you've got that safety blanket of a desktop and then you can go tinkering with more of the command line stuff and the package management and all of that. And if you're just starting from scratch with, say, FreeBSD, and you've got no GUI there, it's, it can be a little bit daunting. Whereas having a really easy GUI installer, and you know, if you've got an old laptop that you can chuck it on, I would highly recommend this GhostBSD 18.10. Install it and get your feet wet with a bit of BSD. Now, I know that you got your feet very wet um, at MeetBSD in California. Did GhostBSD come up at all there? There's definitely a few people there that use GhostBSD on their desktops. Um, I heard a lot more, though, about TrueOS, which is an effort from a few IX Systems folks, including Chris Moore, to create a base BSD in which products and other BSDs can be based off of. FreeNAS, um, TrueNAS, but also desktop BSDs, like the Trident desktop distribution and now GhostBSD. So this is really neat, because instead of having all these crazy different bases, You've got one base that has an easily programmatical way to create a derivative. And they're kind of calling them even distributions in a sense. And this looks like a good one. They've swapped out the uh, default SSL system and went with Libre SSL. And you also get advantage of the standard package tools in BSD, which are really easy to work with. It's using ZFS by default. It's got Network Manager to manage the network connections. This thing's got the latest Intel drivers and the NVIDIA 390 driver. Um, and this is a pretty great-looking BSD distribution. So, yeah, I was a little disappointed I couldn't get it to go. Uh, and, you know, if you were going to say upgrade, it would just be a package update, package upgrade type command. I mean, we're this is easy stuff even for Linux users that uh, have never really tried BSD before to dive in and just give it a go. It's so easy, even us Linux users can figure it out, Joe. Yeah, even I managed to get it installed, <laughs> so it must be all right. <laughs> they would love to know that. It's a good-looking distribution, and I think that's why folks down there at MeetBSD ran it, as a lot of them ran it as their desktop. Although I will say, there was more people at MeetBSD just using the command line as their desktop than <laughs> yeah. an actual desktop. Why doesn't that surprise me? <laughs> So we talked about Endless OS a few months ago, shipping on some ASUS hardware, and it seems that it's shipping on some more hardware pretty soon. Yeah, this is the hack, hack-computer.com, and they pitch it as a way for kids to learn computers by giving them a fun, playful way to modify their environment, both with a graphical tool and then show them at a code level what's being changed, maybe CSS or operating code, whatever could be getting adjusted as they make settings changes in various applications and games with a what they call playful narrative. And they say, parents, this is your opportunity to free up your computer and get a $300 computer for your kid that'll come loaded with coding software, learning apps, and 12 free months of content and updates. Well, again, this is an ASUS machine, and it's a 14-inch full HD screen with four gigabytes of RAM. So that's not too bad for 300 bucks, is it? depending on the build quality. Yeah. Even if you put another Linux distro on there, that's not bad for a kind of entry-level laptop. But it goes to show that Endless is not dead. We talked about them laying off quite a few staff not too long ago, but this deal with Asus must be worth something to them, and if they sell 
a fair number of these, it might mean that they're kind of back in business. There's a content deal at play here, too, because the hack computer comes with that subscription. And the idea is that as the kids' skill levels increase, every month there's new increasing challenges that download to the computer. Somebody has to be generating that. And I don't know. We don't know at this point because this is early. I've contacted them to find out more information. And I've also signed up to be a beta participant in their program. So I can try to learn more. Uh, but right now, there are a couple of questions up in the air. Like, who's who's generating that content? Is it endless? Is that an ASUS initiative? At this point, we don't really have that information. But if you do, go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact and let us know. And if I find out more, I'll follow up. Well, the big hardware news this week was that System76 have got some new desktop machines. And they're looking pretty nice. Yeah, you've got Thelio, Thelio Major, and Thelio Massive which start at $1,000, $1,100-ish. And you could work your way up to fifty, sixty, maybe even 70000 depending on how you configure <laughs> one of these. My rig's somewhere like between um, 3000 and 5600 depending on like the drive and GPU configuration I go with. But their middle tier, Thelio Major, starts with either Threadripper or Corex CPUs, and it goes up to 128 gigs of RAM. And you can get up to nearly 46 terabytes of storage in this thing. And then they have a high-end one that goes up to 768 gigs of ECC RAM and 86 terabytes of storage. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty intense. They, they, but I think maybe uh, the other thing that is hard to really appreciate through an audio medium is the effort they've put into these custom case designs. They've got two types of wood that they've sandwiched in with a powdered metal and it looks really sharp. They have maple or walnut. Walnut's sort of a classical, rich brown wood, and maple has sort of a high-contrast, contemporary look to it. And Carl had a back-and-forth with me over email. He's very proud of this. And there's some good stuff in this machine, aside from just the design, but they paid a lot of attention to the design. There's no bumps between metal and wood. It's it's seamless, and it looks really well done. Even the back end of this machine, they've put a solar system design on the fan grill. It's a lot of small attention to detail, including this cool daughter board that they're breaking out some of the proprietary functionality into. That's a little bit controversial, though, isn't it? Because they'd kind of hype this up to be open and, you know, open hardware. And although this is certified by the Open Source Hardware Association, it is still just using your standard Intel or AMD hardware that needs all the blobs to run. And, okay, the daughter board does break some of that stuff out, and they've made that open hardware. But I think it has disappointed. Well, I know it has. I've seen the disappointment in some of the comments and discourse about this online. And I don't know, did they overhype this? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, how could you deliver a fully open Intel system? The only way they're going to deliver that is maybe if it was a risk-based system, and we don't even know for sure if that's true. Mm. I say this is a tricky line for them because they they have an intention here to continue to push this forward as much as possible, and they have open-sourced a lot of the design. It's up on GitHub right now. Um, but yeah, I think maybe, you know, it was people, when they hear open hardware, they think something a little different than what was delivered here. Uh, at the end of the day, it's still a very re- respectable, very high-performance, good-looking system that's more open than your average desktop PC. And there is some innovation in this daughter board, but we just have to wait and see how far they push it forward. And they do look cool in 80s as well, which I like. 
<laughs> as in they look like from the 1980s? They don't look like 80s computers. They look like 80s furniture to me <laughs> that, with that wooden metal combination. Yeah. But like in a really cool, stylish way, not in a like right. naff way. Right. No, they, they do look, They I think, are some of the best looking desktops I've seen. Kind of makes me want to build a, a new system here. And, mm. you know, play around with Threadripper too. Yeah, I wouldn't mind one of the cases. I don't think they're selling the cases separately, which I think they could probably sell quite a few of. Yeah, they could. I, You know, they just want you to buy a computer with all the parts in it, too. Yeah. They've said they will possibly have me out later this month to take a look at it in person, because um, right now it's just pre-orders. And I'm, that's where I'm on the fence. I, I do want to see it in person. I'd like to hear it, too. That's a big thing for me. Yeah. And I'd like to see the way it's designed on the inside a little more. That hasn't been something that there's a lot of pictures of. There's some good tee shots, but I'd, I'd like to see the inside of one of these things, see how it's put together, see how the cooling system works. It could be one of the better options for desktop Linux users. Um, we just don't know quite yet, but for those that are willing to try it, the pre-orders are open. Yeah, well, when you're down there, you'll have to try and pick me up a case when no one's looking. <laughs> I'll just sneak it into my bag. Yeah. And if that <laughs> happens, you'll find about it right here on the Linux Action News program. In fact, you can get all of the ways to get this show every single week at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe, and we'll be covering this story and many others in the Linux and open source world. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on Linux and the open source news of the week. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. See you later. 